everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Mangum Reads. I'm Spencer, and joining me as per usual are BJ and Sarah. How y'all doing? Quite well, Spencer. I'm disappointed that there's no intro. Heads will roll. <laughs> I got spoiled by you covering it last time, so I lost my I lost my head in the process. I am actively double knotting my ribbon. <laughs> <laughs> well, for this week, we're going we decide that we're going to give Carmen Maria Machado another try with another of her stories, the Husband Stitch. Before we get into that, uh, Sarah, do you have a thematic drink for us this week? I do have a thematic drink for us, and I'm very excited about this drink. It is called The Ribbon. Oh, that's on point. Right? Um, And it's an interesting drink. It's a little different than than what I normally do, Um, partially because I like a gin-based drink, and that's kind (laughs) kind of what happens normally. But this one is very orange flavored. But in the best possible way. And so it is made out of equal parts dry sherry and a sort of uh, red vermouth. Then it has um, about half again as much as, or half as much of a Salerno liqueur, which is a blood orange liqueur, and the same amount of Campari. Mm. And that is shaken and served with an orange twist. And it is... It's a little bit, it's very Italian, it's very sort of aperitif, it's very orangey, but it's a kind of bitter orange, which I really like. Mm -hmm. And the second version of it, I have included a little smattering of some homemade fennel bitters, which I really like. I I like orange and fennel together. Um, And it's it's delicious. It is refreshing and um, a very pretty color as well. So there we go. Very nice. Hmm. And in my lazy way, I did a, a a version of a headless horseman that I'm going to call the headless horseman's wife, which was um, <laughs> in, instead of a ginger ale, I used uh, pink grapefruit uh, juice and soda mix and a basil infused vodka and mm. mixed those together and garnished my glass with a bit of green tape. I was going to say that that sounds very summery, BJ, but then I remembered that you are in California and these distinctions don't matter. I mean, it is kind of summery today. It's it's <laughs> it's almost 80 right now. Oh my gosh. It's always almost 80. It's California. <laughs> oh my God. I'm in North Carolina and I get the most winter out of any of you. <laughs> we totally had some days that the nights dipped to like 40-ish. Shut up. Oh yeah, we... <laughs> We, we had a day of where it dipped below 50 at night, and there were news alerts. There were <laughs> cautionary statements that were being put in the newspapers to advise people about what, what they needed to do to avoid the cold. Not launch a shuttle. Yeah, that. <laughs> uh, uh, Spencer, are you drinking anything? I, I had a glass of water, but in my excitement over our last Harry Potter podcast, I spilled it. So now <laughs> I've got a stain on the floor. <laughs> Okay, well, this is the content we bring to you, listeners. <laughs> well, before getting into the meat of it, we'd like to start with one-star reviews. Now, this being a short story, it's sometimes hard for you to find any, but were you able to get any for us this week, sir? Well, I was, and so what I did this week, when we have short stories, I usually try to find the collection, the reviews of the collection that they're included in, um, especially if they happen to be a prominent short story within that collection. Sh- collections are usually built around one or two stories. Um, and this this short story was, I would say, probably the main story in Carmen Maria Chato, Mar- 
Carmen Maria Machado's um, collection, her body, her body and other stories. And it's the it's the first story in the collection. And there are several reviews, even if they are one star reviews, that call out this story specifically. And usually they call out call it out specifically to say like I liked this one the best out of all of them in this collection. Hmm. Um, but I have I have I have stupid people on the internet for you today. No, really? I know, I know. And as always, I've tried to find things that are like a ridiculous. Or B, are commenting on something that I think that we will talk about in relation to the story later. So I have a, I have a smattering of them. They're all re- mostly relatively short. Um, and I have, because I wanted, I wanted particularly stupid reviews, I went to Amazon instead of Goodreads. <laughs> um, so we are, we are in the Good Amazon call. Call. universe <laughs> today. Uh, so someone named Karen, who has a last name attached to this account, but I won't read out, um, Ooh, has given a one-star review, t- yeah, very Karen, uh, titled Had to Buy for a Class, that um, she writes, horrible book. If you want sex and violence, then this is for you. If you have an ounce of morals and values, then steer clear. Interesting. I, I... And I would like to point out that she has used the wrong version of Van. <laughs> Which community college was she going back to for continuing education? Does it say that too? It doesn't. It doesn't say. But uh, clearly, we have read this story. Therefore, our morals and values have gone out the window. Well, that's assuming I had any before I even went into it. Sure. But, you know. Um, then we go to. I, I'm not even going to attempt uh, this username, uh, but it's a one-star review titled "Not a Fan." Period. Only a couple of decent stories. The longest one is the most unbearable. A lot of hand-waved, quote, just go with it, uses the Stephen King tradition of introducing a monster or dark force without any explanation of where it came from. Two of the stories are just fan fiction, one gratuitously erotic and one clumsily surreal. Was not surprised to learn that this author also writes erotica. (laughs) Graphic sex seems to be substituted for deeper meaning and content. Well, that's a different interpretation than I had of the text. I it's it's really this last paragraph that I came for. <laughs> uh, I think we're going to talk more than we ever have on this podcast about sex this episode. Um, well, we, yeah, we, we have, and we will also be substituting it for deeper meaning and content. That's true. We have talked about it before, and we did say that this was probably the most sex-heavy story that we've had, but we did talk a reasonable amount about it with the fifth season because that yes it, it was a a i think surprisingly good feature of that story yes mm-hmm. that's true and we talked about it a little bit with hungry daughters of starving mothers yes and we we just discussed ron's wand in great detail in our last chapter of harry potter so these things come up uh, yes yeah <laughs> phrasing spencer phrasing um thank you so i must say that i'm i was very ambivalent about this story um can I get? Are, are you moving on from one star reviews? Oh, you have more. I'm excited. Okay. I I do. I have one more that I want to give because uh, this one gets into I think some content that Spencer wants to talk about, uh, as well as myself. Um, and this is the longest one that I have. And the title is it's from a woman named Rachel. And the title of this review is author plagiarized a children's book. <laughs> oh come on! <laughs> no, it's not going to go there, is it? Green ribbon. Wow. So let me start off my saying, 
that I read this book about a month ago. I liked it, found the stories eerie and slightly strange, but still enjoyable. So this person actually liked this book, which I think is fascinating. Uh, the author's most popular story, and in my opinion, best out of the collection, is the first one, The Husband Stick. Fast forward to today, and I came across an article in BuzzFeed <laughs> talking about a creepy story in a 1985 children's book, In a Dark, Dark Room and Other Scary Stories, Reillustrated Edition, I Can Read, Level 2. Holy crap. The author just took the first few sentences of the story and obviously wrote more, but is the exact same plot in her story, even down to the same damn, to the color of the damn ribbon. If it's one thing I cannot stand, it's people who copy others' work and pass it off as their own, even if it's a children's book. Shame on you, Carmen Machado. (laughs) Oh, the outrage. The indignation that went into that. This is my favorite review that I've read in this segment the entire time that we've done it. Um, so she really didn't like West Side Story. <laughs> well, no, she didn't like... She couldn't have liked Romeo and Juliet either because it's based Pyramus on... Pyramus and Thisbe. Yeah, and- Pyramus yeah. and Thisbe. <laughs> Everything is redone, including including the Green Ribbon story from In the Dark, Dark Room and Other Scary Stories. That was not new. <laughs> I can this read a- level two. This is a very old story. This has been part of the cultural zeitgeist for hundreds, if not thousands of years. I mean, Sarah, I think we were talking about before that this is straight up Washington Irving was like, you know, the one who introduced this to American literature beforehand. As a very cursory Google search will tell you. Yeah, Uh, I believe it's, I've not actually read it, but I think uh, looking at Google, The Adventure of the German Student, Mm -hmm. like 1824. I was going to say, if you're reading BuzzFeed for your literary information, it's unlikely that your Google skills are that great. I suppose, I suppose that's true. (laughs) But it's, I mean, Washington Irving was basically just doing the same thing that In a Dark, Dark Room and other short scary stories were doing. Was He was just repackaging stories that had been part of oral tradition for long before he did it. So it was it's well older than that. Grim Brothers Grimm model. Yeah, that he was just the, the guy that finally wrote them all down and got a lot of fame for it. But mm-hmm. we, we know that, you know, version, that various derivatives of the story are ancient and cross-culture. I mean, like Good Ancient Japan, the story of the crane's wife is basically the story of not tr- your wife's hiding something from you you eventually confront her about the thing she's hiding and everything falls apart accordingly like ancient greek mythology of orpheus in the underworld of him being told don't turn around otherwise your wife will vanish forever and he totally makes it to the edge of the underworld and turns around and she disappears is basically this the same theme as the story it is a very very old theme that's basically just part of cultural consciousness at this point you mean that's not just the can can sure <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, a- accusing her of, I mean, it also is very much ignoring the point of where she's using this story because you recognize it. She's yeah. using this, she is a very purposeful thing. It's even structurally tied to the other various little uh, line breaks we see every paragraph where she suddenly starts referencing various urban stories or various tall tales. It's all building up to that kind of moment. It's all tied through. It's... It, it, it is a purposeful homage to it as part of the entire structure of the story. So, yeah, plagiarism is entirely the wrong interpretation of what's happening here. I would say so, yeah. And yet here we are. Yeah. Well, you know, I also like it that she didn't recognize that. It was BuzzFeed that had to tell her that that was there, too. <laughs> and then d- 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 clearly asked no follow-up questions. Yeah. It's like BuzzFeed has told me that is the only degree of research I need to go through here. Uh, also, I have read this BuzzFeed article. 
Oh. Um, because I do my research, guys. <laughs> Professional mm-hmm. podcaster here. Um, and it, it literally is just like, does anybody else remember this story that you read when you were a kid? It really fucked me up, and I still think about it today. Okay. This is, this is the content of said, sto- of said article. Out of curiosity for, I mean, given when, given when that uh, compilation of scary stories came out, I feel like a lot of us read it. Mm-hmm. Did, you, did you guys read The Green Ribbon growing up? Oh, absolutely. It informed, um, I actually do, st- like, I, I do remember being very creeped out creeped out by it, uh, particularly because of the illustrations in that book. But oh, I have yeah. also uh, structured my current iteration of my Halloween costume around it. So, yes, really? I would say... I would say that it is still informing my worldview. It, it definitely is a very memorable story. It's part of the reason it's been repeated and redone and retold so many times across every kind of culture is that it sticks with you. It's creepy and haunting. And the version that was told back in that uh, compilation, it's in a dark, dark room with other scary stories. Did it have another name? I feel like I remembered it having a different name when I read it, the compilation. But whatever. Oh, the compilation? Could it? Yeah, I mean, you might be confusing it with scary stories to tell in the dark. Yeah, that's probably what I'm confusing it yes. with. Um, which but, I think we all read at about the same age. But yeah, that one more, more than any other in that compilation stuck with me as being really haunting. Also, the yeah, the illustrations from that book were just creepy. Yeah. Um, and we all, did we all read this story from the Granta website mm-hmm. where it was first published? I did, yeah. So there is, we, we have also gone on um, sort of a creepy vintage image to begin this story as well. Yeah, the children's doll kind of looking thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, in a yeah. sort of line sketch with d- disproportionate torsos or arms, or maybe it's just their clothing. I'm not sure. Something's All off. The above, yeah. yeah. And the really weird hand. That's yeah. what bothers me the most, I think. Um, <laughs> well, get, getting into the story, initial question that I had, uh, the very opening part of the story is a guide to reading it aloud. Mm-hmm. Did you guys think that was part of the story or just like a note that was put in there by, you know, the editor? I think it's part of the story. I originally thought it was just a guide to reading it aloud. I did not realize until much, until it started to become repeated throughout that, no, 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 this is going to be a very interestingly told story. You're going so did you do it, Spencer? Did I do that? It kind of informed how I imagined the characters. Yeah. Okay, well, sometimes you read stories aloud to um, your partner, and so... I'm not based on the first third of the story. I'm not reading this line to Bridget. <laughs> really? Interesting. No, no, that just sounds like an awkward experience for all involved. I feel like it'd be more awkward than reading it to anybody else. Uh, yeah, I think it would just be awkward. Period. From awkward for me to read that section aloud to anybody. Doesn't matter who it is. But we're going to get into that now as to how this story starts. Speaking of awkward reading it aloud to anybody, spent. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, no. Mm-mm. Uh, let's just talk together about what this story is about. Uh, Sarah, you were the one who originally was reading this and you recommended it. Where does the story begin? Um, well. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I mean, for the first part of the story, I didn't, wasn't really sure where it was going, but yeah. it starts with a, it starts biblical in the beginning, uh, a young and and, and it ends biblically uh, there, or differently biblically continues because I want to know him, um, or I I know I want him. But anyway, yeah. But it concerns a girl that is at a party at a neighbor's house, and she's noticed a boy, and she 
is very clear about what she wants and what she wants out of him and sets sets about that goal. Yeah, and and it, I would sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. No, it's fine. Um it's very it, it's written interestingly because she is surprisingly confident, which I feel like is very uncommon mm-hmm. and in the self-descriptive female lead stories that I've read. Yeah, this is what like essentially what I was going to say, like this is a really interesting first person voice that we're getting. Mhm. It's so reassured. Uh, self-assured. I, uh, it was surprising. It was kind of it t- kind of took a minute, a minute to get used to it. And it's, you know, I don't. We don't get a sense of necessarily why that is when we are beginning the story or anything like that. But it does. It does seem relatively early on in the story to have to do with the fact that this is a voice who understands that her story is taking part in larger cultural stories. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it's playing into that. That she is recapitulating some story that has always been told before. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess I didn't look at when this was uh, released and written. So uh, October 2014. Um, mm-hmm. And apparently is a 28-minute read, um, <laughs> which I find a very interesting thing to be on, um, be a little factoid at the beginning of the story. Um, <laughs> I guess I think it's because of the era of a lot of the things that I've read, but how she goes about describing the main character and a lot of the the scenes that um the the sex scenes that that are rife in in this short story it, it didn't feel at least to me like it was written by a woman and i wonder if that's because of what i've read that that has sex scenes like this are usually older books and so the sex positive female leading is a much more modern thing. Oh, that's interesting. Um so are you you're talking about this very first sex scene? Yeah, and and even some of the later ones that are very like that aren't she's not a wilting violet. Mm-hmm. No. Um and and so it, it it's like a she clearly enjoys it and is going after it rather than just sort of being a a participant in like what the guys decided to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so when they, as this sort of teenage couple, when they leave her house and are kind of walking to wherever her parents think they're walking to, um, she is not only sort of as equal a participant in this, but is sort of, I think I get the impression that she's pushing this whole thing. Yeah, she's mm-hmm. taking except charge. For, mostly. <laughs> except for... Mostly. Well, and I suppose she is taking charge in this in this instant as well. But, like, what we learn very early on um, is that there is a caveat to... And maybe maybe that's not even a fair term. But there is, there is a limitation to what her boyfriend is allowed to do. Mm-hmm. She has two rules. No touching yes. the ribbon. Yes, and what are those rules? Uh, no, no coming inside and no touching the ribbon. Yes. Um, yeah, and that's, uh, we don't learn anything else about the ribbon, except that it's not for him. No, that it doesn't, he doesn't need to be involved in it. It is purely hers, and it's something she has no interest in discussing with him, because it is her own. And it's, it's, she's such an interesting character from these early, from these early, uh, paragraphs. I can't say chapters, it's a short story. Um, that she's openly aware that her feeling, that she's perfectly comfortable with her feelings, and she's openly aware of the fact that they are opposed by society, that society would not look kindly upon them. And she could not give a care in the world about it. 
that she even she even tells a story about another girl that requested something so vile that her parents sent her off to a sanatorium. And her only thought about this is, I don't know what the deviant pleasure she asked. I don't know what deviant pleasure she asked for, though I desperately wish I did. What magical thing could be could you want so badly that they would take you away from the known world for wanting it? There's just such certainty about who she is and what she wants out of the world that is just interesting. It's not. I, it's so rare I see a female protagonist, particularly when she's the focus of the story, written like this, of where she's utterly self-assured, she knows exactly who she is and who she wants, she goes about it, and there's no commentary about it. it it's, it's kind of new to me. I don't see that often. And you still get her some of her kind of questioning about the world or sort of um, oh, in... Um, inconsistency in it. I don't know. I, I don't think I'm phrasing this right, but you know, I think that it's easy to your to your point, Spencer, to have a kind of side character in a novel or in a sh- in a short story that mm-hmm. is a confident female character that becomes a stock confident female character. Mm-hmm. This is not that. Mm-hmm. No, it's fully fleshed out in all of the kind of like uncertainties at the same time as like. D- d- having the self-possession of this is who I am. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and it's all told in the format of like, she's sitting down next to somebody and recounting memories. Mm-hmm. It's very much an aspect of like oral tradition kind of tales <laughs> being told about this. So even when she's providing, ah, damn it. <laughs> and even when she's providing that kind of commentary that another character might provide, it's done indirectly. She's doing it through telling about other stories to have you reach your own conclusion about it. It has a certain kind of fable kind of structure and mindset about it. Let me tell a story for you to reach the point that I want you to understand right now before I even continue on with my own story. And I think she does have a way of... Uh, Carmen Maria Machado has a way of describing the events and the things that are very that is very evocative. Um, mm-hmm. I would... Uh, Spencer, you won't like this, but I, I feel like she does a similar description of sex as and, and is similarly maybe entranced by it as uh, Tolkien is of the English countryside. Um, and this yeah. is a little bit more interesting. <laughs> oh, there is there is a lingering quality that goes on in both of these. Yeah, and and Instant. it's very like incredibly evocative and descriptive in mm-hmm. a way that I wouldn't really call. Uh, like romance novel sexy or whatever um, ju- but just a like you can really imagine the scene and the things about it the uh, mm-hmm. he spends into the dirt pat pat patting like the beginning of rain like you know exactly what that is what it sounds like and everything else about it but it is not at all sexy in, in any stretch of at least my <laughs> imagination so no, but it, it is it is so I what I th- I think that Carmen Maria Chato, Machado does with language she gets so specific mm-hmm. about her descriptions that they they go into the universal because they are so specific right they kind of loop back around it, it, right it's actually she's gotten to the point where sex scenes are literature and not pulp yeah. It, it's interesting, too, because it, it, it's incredibly evocative, incredibly descriptive, without being journalistic. She's not describing the event. She's informing the experience. And that's a very interesting kind of way of putting us into the moment of it. Where mm-hmm. she's, she gives us a lot of detail, but it's not really describing the, the circumstances of what's going on. It's the sense experience of what you'd be going through if you were present for it. And that really effectively puts you in the moment. Yeah. And, this and is I think, like, you know, she does it... Oh, go ahead, BJ. 
I was just quickly going to say this is the opposite of uh, bad sex in fiction. Yes. Um, <laughs> like, I think this is really good sex in fiction. <laughs> so you're going to say she does what? Well, I was just, I was going to, I was going to say that in addition to, you know, she does like the actual sort of act of sex really well in, in the descriptions and in the kind of evocative nature of what she writes. But then she doesn't like, I feel like for a lot of authors, when you are going to do a sex scene, especially if you are doing a kind of literary fiction sex sex scene, you sort of fade out to black at some point and pick up again later. And she does it after they're done. yeah, Yeah, she doesn't do that. She has this kind of interesting... I mean, yes, she has some, some, some breaks and some pauses in what she describes and doesn't. But in the same paragraph, she goes, you know, afterwards, he slumps in the seat and I can hear the sounds of the pond, loons and crickets and something that sounds like a banjo being plucked. The wind picks up off the water and cools my body down. And like by, for, for me, by allowing herself to actually stay in this scene, mm-hmm. it's so much more realistic. Mm-hmm. And so much it's, more interesting. It's also particularly interesting, too, because of the breaks that she does between these sections of where she tells you how you should tell it aloud or how yes. you should ex- help people experience it if you were recounting it orally. It's like it, it, it's like telling the next storyteller you're passing the story down to how to, how to convey it to others. Like after they're on their walk and they have sex in the bushes behind a tree, she she basically teaches you, takes you through what sounds you have in the clearing by putting you through the breathing that the characters would have in that moment. Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting way of kind of putting you in the moment to describe it in that manner. Yeah. So I have, I have a, I kind of forgot about this section that's next. Um, Cause it feels a little okay. bit like a non sequitur, but then I'm realizing that ribbons can be other places. And now I have questions. Mm. Um, which, which, which section are we talking about? Uh, the one right after the, the sex in the bushes, I think. Uh, but the, oh, the, the potatoes, grocery store. Yeah. And they're being toes yeah. there and bloody stumps and now so um at some point let's, later let's, in the story, let's talk about yeah, let's, let's get us there let's, let's introduce <laughs> it um I, at some point when she's a little girl she she decides that there or saw toes amongst the russet tubers and touched it and then asked about it kind of freaked out in the store yeah Got dragged away by her mom, who just basically set her down in a chair and explained it didn't happen, but your dad will talk you through it here in a minute. And the dad comes home and has prepared basically like a three or four piece argument to just dismiss what she thought she saw as being illogical and clearly not what's, what was yes, happening. Yes, very, very pedagogical and, and didactic. And she mm-hmm. analyzes this both in how she felt at the time versus how she could have responded now. And the definite differences and distinctions between those two. Yeah, and so I think this understanding of how she how she would have thought about it or seen it or talked to her father now is so interesting. Mm-hmm. In terms of where we are going with the story. Because I think you're right, BJ, that until you pointed it out, I had read this as a sort of like, oh, isn't this a weird thing that happened when she was a kid? Blah, blah, blah. But this is a story that is so built on the introduction of small details mm-hmm. in moving forward um, that it really, it begs a reread in that way, um, simply because of what you learn about ribbons going on, but also how they can function and what they mean. And 
I mean, how she responds at the time as a young girl is that mm-hmm. she just accept, accepts what her dad says without question. That, well, clearly he's right. He's in a position of authority. He's telling me what things are. I don't have perspective to respond to the arguments he just said. So, yeah, that's got to be true. But we're getting the inkling, even just here in the real part of the story, that she both knows enough now to know what he's saying has flaws, but also that just because that's what you're saying everyone believes is how it is doesn't mean that I'm wrong. Like, is the line, as a grown woman, I would have said to my father that there are true things in this world only observed by a single set of eyes. I feel like the follow-up is also really interesting. As a girl, I consented to his account of the story and laughed when he scooped me Mm -hmm. up from the chair to kiss me and sent me on my way. That's a very interesting way of being like, I accepted, like, the world that other people observe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Told me that I should have. And, I mean, what what we learn later... Is that every woman has a ribbon? Well, but nobody. Well, maybe, but a bunch. Like it's not I a guess bunch. It's not, of, yeah, yeah. The 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 two that we spend any other time with. Yeah, and, and we and we get a couple of other instances of women who have who have ribbons. And presumably, but, like all women have ribbons. I guess given that she knew that her baby was a boy because it didn't have a ribbon. Yeah, that mm-hmm. it wasn't, or it wasn't going to ever. I don't remember. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but, but the, the men are so ill-informed about the concept, he has to ask whether their child would have one without yeah. any understanding of how it works. Yeah. Um, but the, And that leads into the fact, I think, that is crystallized in the scene that despite the fact that her father has this kind of well-reasoned argument for why these are not toes in the potatoes, mm-hmm. nobody mm-hmm. talks about the ribbons. Except in, like, maybe a husband asking his wife or a, or a son asking his mother about them. But, like, it doesn't seem that anyone asks about the ribbons, that they are themselves this kind of untold, undiscussed story. Yeah, I think the only reference we have other characters talking about it is the brief kind of reference when they're, like, knitting. And the one woman who's got, like, a ribbon around her thumb or mm-hmm. finger. Mm-hmm. And she just casually kind of says, yeah, it's inconvenient. Yeah. And you're not even sure whether she's talking about the ribbon or not. It's just part of the conversation. Yeah. So we have this weird little flashback yeah. that we have. <laughs> Interspersed with more... Um, more sex. What? More sex. Yeah. Yeah, well, what, I mean, the, the sort of broad strokes of what we have is a marriage. Well, not yet, um, because they're almost 18, um, and he eventually asks her to marry him just shy of 18. And so now, now I go back and wonder, like... All right, who are these people? What are their ages? And the mm-hmm. very uncomfortable, uh, locked in a closet with the teacher scene. Yeah, there's so much, so much un- discomfort that's mixed in with just this recounting of the past. That yeah. just that, that that's just so much. It's so uncomfortable that it's just, uh, I said what the worst thing was, and it was this. And then he asked me to marry him. Just no dwelling on that at all. That's just part of the background that we're going with. And so, so we have had a couple of stories that we have talked about, like, oh, these are really uber specific on what time period they're in and when this is happening, and maybe that isn't the is or is not the most effective w- way to kind of deal with them. Where do we think we from, are in this story? Yeah, this this one's removed from time. I I think, uh, only kind of agree with that. Okay. Go ahead, okay. Spencer. I'll I'll say your piece and then I'll disagree. I mean, there's definitely an element of kind of 1950s culture that's brought into the background of this in terms of describing their courtship, describing how they met, uh, the idea of them getting married so young. But I think it's purposely meant to be as generic of a 
Jane and John meeting kind of story as possible in terms of how they got up. Just kind of this, mm-hmm. just ev- everyone has a certain connection and tie back to that kind of thing, whether they experienced it or not. It's just meant to be the quintessential two neighbors meeting kind of relationship go from there, which is purposely meant to be timeless. Yeah. Which I will say, and I, I'm just going to interrupt for just a second, BJ, before you go, but like urban legends really function the best when they're about 20 to 30 years yeah. removed from mm-hmm. present day, right? And so they continually get updated because you need them to be a little bit removed from where you are to have that kind of timeless quality, right. but they can't be so far in the past that they feel unaccessible. And which is required, required horror movies nowadays to invent scenarios for, by which cell phones don't work because yes. certainly or- All right, BJ, sorry. Yeah, and, and actually, so I, I was saying I was going to disagree with you, but I do agree that this has like the 50s, 60s, um, if they went and got burgers and shakes at their local burger joint and, you know, shared a milkshake that would 100%, you know, have gone in the story. And that's not something that people do in this day and age ever. That's that's me in 45 minutes. <laughs> I, I know. And that's exactly why I, I chose that specific I thing. Um, Working with you. So, and, and also... I also just imagine that that steel wool is sort of a thing of the past at, at like being around. And I know you can still get it, but I just I don't imagine that being a common household thing anymore. And that in some ways like really put me like this is an older story along with their ages. I a thousand percent have steel wool in my house right oh, now. Oh, so do I. Like I have it at, like on like I on know my where sink, the steel wool is. But like we're essentially old people, so <laughs> I beg your pardon. <laughs> Spencer, you're an old cat lady, so I don't know why you're you're cranky about this. Yeah, but I was and don't, I was an old cat and you can't I was an old cat lady at eighteen anyway. So like of all of us, you're like the oldest. Yeah, but I was that way at like twelve. It's not changed. It's just me. There's no age has not caused this. <laughs> right. That's why I'm saying we're essentially like I'm not saying that we're old, but we're essentially old people and like how we deal with the world and the stuff that we have in our house. Like Okay. On the distinction of we're not old, we're old people, yes, I accept your point. Anyway. Okay, so in the aging process of <laughs> our couple here. Yeah. yeah, and so we sort of jump around, um, and yeah. then we get a, an interesting... We get kind of our first urban myth, or urban oh, story. Urban legend and urban legend. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we I've heard this one before. This is, I mean, I think all of the urban legends that we go in the story are very much urban legends we've all kind of heard before. Of the girl going to the graveyard to stab a knife into into a grave, and her friends daring her to do it, and she accidentally stabs her own dress and dies, perhaps of fright, there on the ground, assuming that she, the um, dead come out and pinned her to the to, uh, to the ground. Mm-hmm. And she tells the story while recounting what the mistakes of the character were from her own perspective. Uh, you guys remember what those mistakes were that she that she that she wanted us to remember? Uh, I mean, I have it in front of me, so so now I I, I can easily recall it because I can read it. Go ahead, um, so, <laughs> This is me saying I can't find the paragraph uh, right gotcha. now. So take scoffing uh, is the first one. Pride is the second, and then the third is being right. The worst mistake. That's an interesting one. Yeah. Um, so to me, especially like coming back to it and going to the. Um, conclusion of the story which we sort of all know is going to follow the the velvet ribbon or or whatever the the actual title of the story that she plagiarized was um (laughs) the green ribbon thank you 
um, that she doesn't know what would happen if she unties the ribbon, I guess is, is what I'm thinking. Like she has ideas and she, she's fairly sure what, what it is. And so mm-hmm. the being right is the worst mistake. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because I don't I don't think we have any evidence throughout this story that she actually knows what would happen. She has kind of like an instinctual thought of what it will be, or at least a kind of ingrained fear about what it might be, but mm-hmm. we have no reason to think she has any actual knowledge. Or even, it may not even be like fear necessarily, and maybe we can talk about this a little bit later, but like what she says, at least up to this point, about her boyfriend and then husband touching the ribbon is like, no, it's mine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is not necessarily fear about what would happen. It's just that it but, is hers and hers alone, and that needs like, to be respected. Yeah, n- n- nobody else gets to touch this. Mm-hmm. So, and but that shouldn't be an issue of argument. Right. That mm-hmm. I've given you everything else, I've been accommodating to everything else, can't I keep this to me? Why do I have to give up all of myself to the world and to you? Mm-hmm. Well, so I have a question and, that I want to return after we've sort of finished the plot, which is, is it a metaphor or is it not? Which I feel like we always okay. discuss with the short stories. Um, yes. <laughs> but this next paragraph, we get into another urban legend that I've never heard before, but maybe you have, Spencer, because you're familiar with all the ur- urban legends, apparently, because I'd never heard the, f- the previous one either. I, I, well, that, oh, question. I, had you guys heard that one before about the girl in the graveyard? Oh, I certainly had. Nope. Okay. As we've proven with expressions in our last episode, I just make things up. So um, well, I need to check every now and then. I mean, clearly you, you make some things up, but some things clearly not. Um, I I sort of wonder if this is a... There are certain ages where you would get these stories, especially passed amongst your peers. And mm-hmm. um, I went to a, a Jewish day school for, for a quite long time. And so the... The myths and and urban legends would have been different. Um, you were learning about Lilith at that age. You're not wrong. <laughs> I will say that this type of story and the age at which I would have been reading whatever it is, it's not scary stories to share in the dark, mm-hmm. but like that is, and we have talked about this many times on this podcast that I don't like horror stories. This is the reason. Gotcha. Because of this much exposure Ur- when you were young? Urban legends are the reason that I don't like horror uh, stories. Gotcha. So if we can... So I know all of these urban legends. <laughs> husband to tie a ribbon around your neck, it might not leave. Uh, that's the end of like, it. While I just have a ribbon around my neck. <laughs> like, this is... <laughs> I guess this is this my, is life, my now. life now. <laughs> well, um, so what's the next urban legend that we get? Well, we do have the wedding. Right. And they actually th- get married. Well, but th- that is the urban... Le- just making yes, sure that's what yeah, we're going yeah, to. Yeah, 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 that's the next urban legend. Although we did, I will say at some point, and this is not, we don't have to talk about this, but at some point before here, I think, we got the hook man legend uh, thrown they, in there. W- when they were out smooching From the parking. The, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that came up. We've already got that in there. Then we get to the wedding. Um, yeah, and so we get a, she, one, when she's out buying her wedding gown, um, that, uh, she's reminded of a story of a young woman who, uh, wanted to go dance with her lover. I feel like that has some other subtext, um, <laughs> but she couldn't afford a dress. And so she got a, uh, dress from a second hand shop and then got sick and died. 
and apparently they had put embalming fluid in uh oh that there was embalming fluid in the dress because it was from a corpse bride mm-hmm. um and and the great moral of that story is being poor will kill you i that's just <laughs> which is i love that she draws just a true moral right. out of this story yes that's very captain vimes i appreciate yeah. it <laughs> Or perhaps um, the moral is that brides never fare well in stories. Also so now true. she's got a sort of meta. <laughs> this is how stories work. Brides and, are not going to do well. And, and she's telling us the story while she's getting married. Mm-hmm. Yeah. After all, stories can sense happiness and snuff it out like a candle. We marry in April oh. on an unseasonably cold afternoon. Yeah. Um, uh, and then they and, go on a honeymoon. Well, yeah, with again well, their particularly sex, the, the particular sexual nature of their relationship also informing how their wedding plays out. Too. Yes, that's true. Yes, um, and we that's also true, get a so, little bit yeah. more of like the he's getting closer to the ribbon, and right. as as the yeah. sex scenes continue, he gets closer and closer to the ribbon, and then there's a um, a first for Saint George. <laughs> yes, well said. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> They go to Europe. Uh, they do go yeah. to Europe. They honeymoon in Europe. Uh, mm-hmm. More sex happens in their travels in Europe. With, with a again, a description of how you should repeat the sounds or re- understand the sounds of uh, their train travel based on that. Uh, I, I know yeah. these parentheticals about reading this aloud are just extraordinary. I love this so much. If you're reading this story out loud, make the sound of the bed under the tension of train travel and lovemaking by straining a metal folding chair against its hinges. When you're exhausted with that, sing the half-remembered lyrics of old songs to the person closest to you. Think of lullabies for children. It's a, you know, choose-your-own-fully-work adventure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's really effective, actually, because that really does put a sound at a kind of a, a moment in my head. But yeah. that's the point of this. This mm-hmm. is she is training us to recount her story as we go, and then she gets pregnant very quickly. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess she changed her rule once they got married, presumably. <laughs> um, she she changed her rule at the wet, at the actual uh, ceremony itself. Yes. Yes. So not quite before they uh, after they got married. Um, mm-hmm. Well, did she change? Well, as her long rule? as the dress will still fit. fit. <laughs> She she did change her rule with the ceremony itself because the first at king the, the first at the church kind of thing remember yeah I oh she, yeah she did, says she did rescind her first rule given the occasion um, yes okay uh, but she t- tells her husband about this he's overjoyed and as he's just kind of happily thinking about it his first question he asks her is will the child have a ribbon yeah. And her response to this is really interesting, including even what how she chooses to make her answer, that she settles on the one that brings me the least amount of anger. There is no saying now. Um, and then then it gets, uh, well, I would say uncomfortable. Even, and, and so <laughs> basically he forces her to let him, or touch her bow. Um... And tries to tie it into the sex in some ways. Kind of like he's done before. Like, in his mm-hmm. mind, that this is this is the taboo, and it will be exciting if I add it into the sexual experience in some ways. Despite her increasingly, over the course of this, saying very loudly, no, no, stop. Well, eventually he does, but by this point, we're all very uncomfortable with, what, with what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we get the uh, the wolf child. Yeah, we get another story. <laughs> 
Uh, well, just a question before we go. Uh, what do you guys make of her anger that she feels to him answer, mm. asking this question? What, what do we think of that? How can we explain it? What do we understand from it? Um, I think we I'm, should come back I, to it, because I feel like it ties into the ribbon being a real thing, or a... As well as being something that all women have. Yeah. Yeah, I okay. think that there are a couple of interpretations uh, for the, for this moment, probably in light of where we, we actually end up, but... Um, we'll, we'll add this to our ribbon discussion at the end. Yes. Okay. Good. Um, so right. we get the... Um, Pioneer story, wolves, parents killed... Daughter goes off Tarzan style with the wolves. Uh, yes. yes. Raised by wolves. Okay. Um, we meet send Romulus. Um, uh, and w- with her, you know, eventually she, our narrator kind of hopes having two wolf children that are hers that came of her body. And they certainly bloodied her breasts, but she did not mind because they were hers and only hers. So uh, of all of them, this seemed a little bit non sequitur-ish. But maybe just her relationship with her young child that's going to eventually happen? I think, it's, I think it's her relationship with her child. I think that's fair, but I think it is also her relationship with, with really the world. Um, mm-hmm. And having this sort of constant denial, and we, we will talk about this later, but the constant denial of something that is only for her. Mm-hmm. Coming right after this chapter of her husband increasingly transgressing on one of the few, the only rule that she's still set for him, she's going to this kind of story that she'd learned from her youth about what it would really take to be free of that degree of constant being under threat of what few limits you set on the world, mm-hmm. uh, what you would actually need to do to escape from that, and what that would be like to imagine it. And I think that the that the as we've discussed, the first question that he asks about will it have a ribbon or not brings up this sort of understanding of how the world works and what mm-hmm. determines whether you can have ownership of the world or not. Mm-hmm. And I think that she is she is angry for herself, but I think that she is already angry for her unborn child that, that it is going to come into a world where it may or may not be able to claim something for itself. Right. And even if it tries to claim it to be constantly under siege, even the act yes. of, do- of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So there is a baby. Well, there's a process <laughs> of having a baby. Yes, a, a baby is growing. So I guess before we go to that, I the the last paragraph of the previous one where he comes home with promotion, one promotion and then another, more money for my family, he says, more money mm. for our happiness. How does that strike you? Because... I feel like this would be where the the music would go into a minor chord with with some sharps, um, because this just it's like the the paragraphs before it. She seems relatively happy with how things are going, mm-hmm. and then it sort of turns a little bit, and like the how the sentences are written and how it goes from very descriptive to short choppy sentences. This is this is also one of the first moments of where. Even the sexual nature of the relationship has now kind of fully shifted, or at least yeah. has yeah. changed to a and certain degree. It, instead of, where, of descriptive, it's he sometimes taking me before his coffee, and that's it. And whereas she previously was kind of controlling the pace and deciding what she wanted, even though she has a desire here, it's him that has a list in his mind of the things he desires from me. And she's willing to provide them, but it's a changing of agency, I think, about how he's really now in charge of this process. Mm-hmm. Sarah? Yeah, I think I think that's right. Okay. Um, no, I, I really do. Um, 
And, you know, I think that it, I think that we are going to spend a lot of time talking about what the ribbon means and the agency involved in the, in the presence and touching or non-touching of the ribbon. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that it is, that that conversation is paralleled in really powerful ways with the identity of both a woman who is pregnant and having a child and a father in that situation. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so it, it, in these sections, particularly, it becomes a little, a little complicated about where that agency lies and what conversation we're having about that agency. But his reaction in this moment to her body and their child, I think is really telling. Mm-hmm. I mean, from here on out, his, their relationship becomes so much more, his view on the relationship seems to become so much more possessory. Mm-hmm. That once she's had a child, even even when he's, you know, even the line about, I'm the luckiest man alive, he says, running his hands across my stomach. Beforehand, that could have seemed like a moment between the two of them, but now it no longer seems like she has much of a role in it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's all just about what level of things she's providing to him to complete his world. And then continue, like you said, BJ, with him it ending discussing his promotion and what he's bringing to the family for their happiness. Mm-hmm. She's become a passenger in her own life, which is such a shift from where we started. Yeah, and then yeah, and that and that transfers into her experience of labor yes. as well. Oh That's yeah, this gonna... is a, this, yeah. These these next two sections are rough. Yeah. Um, basically, she has a very long and painful labor, um, mm-hmm. and I was a little surprised at the U in labor, um, and basically mm, true Br- British. Yes. I, um, she sort of st- this is I feel like where the third person sort of comes in where she's talked about like she's not in the room by the the mm-hmm. doctor with the white eyebrows and this is another thing that I probably I didn't consciously pick up on when I was reading this story I think but like now that we're really talking about it I think this really dates the story as well um, that it's like a dude with a, a dude that's old enough that he has white eyebrows being the the doctor that's the ob um right well that yes it's possible but it's still mm-hmm. a throwback nowadays right because yeah. because like sarah pointed out this, this story is all meant to be our if you like imagine quintessential classic american doctor this is the guy you imagine it's all meant to be the 30 years in the past kind of mm-hmm. ro- rose tender yeah. nostalgia informed view of what the nature of our country or nature of our culture is yeah mm-hmm. so it's purposefully in the past but it's a past that's always locked to the present being dragged along yeah um and and i just like the um eyebrows making unreadable morse code across his forehead <laughs> it's just a great phrase and yeah. and you sort of know exactly what what that entails mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and then and, well the, because of her labor is difficult the doctor is not satisfied that a natural birth can occur and is basically proposing that they do a c-section and she begs him off but clearly he indicates to her that her will only matters so much and he's going to ultimately decide what's appropriate and she makes a deal with her little oh, one. Oh, before that, we have to we have to address what? that that paragraph before you jump into that. Which, which one? Which one? If there's no movement soon, we're going to do it. The doctor yeah. says it might be best for mm-hmm. everybody. He looks up, and I'm almost certain he winks at my husband. But pain makes yep. the mind see things differently than they are. Just yeah, it starts. Yeah, yeah. Um, sorry, Sarah, you were going to say something before Spencer said uh, 
about the you know natural birth surgery being necessary. no 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 that is that is where I was getting um, at that point. But I think you're right, BJ, to point that paragraph out because that is where while there were certain sort of uneasy things happening before then, this is the point at which we get into the sort of like the horrors of what can and often does happen to a woman in childbirth when she doesn't have any real agency or say in what's going on. Yeah. Right. This, this is kind of the first moment that though he was possessory, we never thought for a moment that their interests weren't still shared, even yes. if his were predominating. This is these next sections are where we start to realize that they, his interests are independent in some ways, directly opposed to hers. And we need to be aware of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what they end up doing uh, is making a a cut in her perineum. I, I suppose okay in her what perineum her, her perineum. It's okay, an uh, episiotomy or a perineotomy. Okay, yeah. Um, to allow more room for the baby to come out. Yep. Uh, which used to be much more common in American medicine is still mm-hmm. common in certain countries, but recently the World Health Organization said it shouldn't happen in more than like 10% of pregnancies yeah. if yeah. that. Um, very very to the circumstances rather than the norm. But it used to be that well, we either do this or of course there's going to be problems. So we should mm-hmm. do this. Yep. And that was just kind of the norm for like more than half of all pregnancies. There was a, some of the stand-up that you sort of recommended Spencer, the Dan O'Brien talking about mm-hmm. uh, the episiotomy. He talks about how like Basically, medical sciences around births for a very long time was just like, eh, we're just going to do things and see how they turn out. It'll be fine. Hopefully, it doesn't kill either of the patients. But, you know, as long as the baby's fine, that's what's important. Yeah, basically the idea, the goal, I mean, it's kind of sort of, it's it's, what motivated it was a variety of reasons. But one of them was definitely the same reason why C-sections are now going off the charts. It makes the pregnancy happen faster. Um, It makes the birth process happen faster. And... To no real benefit for the mother. Well, for her, it's going to mean an extra right. year an extra year of healing. Yeah, but, no, a, a, a hugely invasive surgery that may or may not have actually been necessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but baby's out faster, and that's much more improving the baby's chances of surviving. Arguably speaking, classically, the mother's too, but medical science has progressed beyond that in a lot of ways. Yeah. <laughs> beyond the mother surviving, it's fine. Um, <laughs> um, so... That, yes. that happens. Yeah, and so the baby comes out, and uh, there is no ribbon. It's a boy. It's a boy. Uh, yeah. So. And this this parenthetical about what to do when you are <laughs> reading this aloud. If you are reading this story out loud, give a paring knife to the listener and ask them to cut the tender flap of skin between your index finger and thumb. Afterwards, thank them. That That's my favorite part of that. That that just makes it all the worse. Yeah. That <laughs> Um, and I, I think we oh also need to come back to to this uh, because I think this is sort of part and parcel to the ribbon. Um, mm-hmm. The I begin to weep and curl the unmarked baby into my chest. Um, sort of what that means, but we're yeah about halfway there. Yeah, we're getting there. Um, so we have another interlude um, of a, a sort of urban legendy thing. But what we get back to, and we can talk about that if you all want to, but what we get back to is this sort of, like, jokey bro culture of American medicine, but also, like, the real possibility that the husband's ditch actually happened here. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so basically this is sort of where um, she clearly doesn't like want to change and, and at least the doctor and probably husband. Uh, oh, yes. The husband starts making decisions. Uh, yeah. about He's her the body. one that brings it up. Yes. Yeah. So the husband's ditch is a real thing. Yeah. And what's interesting, too, is that it's it, it's a real thing and it's horrifying. It's been around for a long time. This story seems to have given a lot of people the word for it, where they knew it yeah. existed and they knew it happened, but they didn't really have a concept of it. Because since this story came out, there's now a lot of articles discussing it. Yeah. A lot of Not- articles discussing discussing it. And this, this section is particularly interesting because, you know, I think that formally it is meant to mimic... Our protagonist has probably had some sort of anesthesia or drugs or something. Mm -hmm. And so she's a little out of it and is maybe not catching everything that is there. But we get the unspeakability of what they're talking about. Because just about every sentence that they're actually speaking, the the doctor and the husband is cut off. It's it's cut off and it's also to a certain degree in code. They're not saying it directly. Yes. Because it's like it's like that it's that category of thing where you know it's inappropriate, but you're talking with a friend and it's kind of funny because we're talking about that transgressive thing, whatever else. And that Madonna song. <laughs> and for her, it's an utter nightmare. She's utterly she's utterly out of control. She can't even engage in the conversation. They're not at all thinking about what she might want about this. Mm-hmm. It's two bros having a talk. And then we end up with the doctor saying, "You're all sewn up. Don't you worry." Yeah, nice and tight. Everyone's mm-hmm. happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, she, having gone through that, knowing it's happened, she takes her baby in the arms and is content in that. Well, and the story continues. I have to remind myself to breathe. That's not signal contentment in my book. Well, he but, is so beautiful. I have to remind myself to breathe. Could be unpacked in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so sure. Uh, so we so basically. She, I mean, she seems to have a good-ish life with her yeah. son it, when he's little. It should be noted throughout the story that she's not looking back at any of this as being an example of her having a bad life. She ends the no. story perfectly content that she had a good husband and that she couldn't have done better and that she's happy with how things have played out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm, well, almost. This, this is what she says. I this know, is what I know, she which says. is possibly like more insidious than... I know, but it's what she thinks. Yes, she does. She th- she, And so she has her little baby... This this isn't me calling this a mentorship kind of thing right now. <laughs> this is our character, damn it. Yes. Um, oh, BJ, we've gotten to the point where he brings it up himself. It, it's Stockholm Syndrome. Um, so basically we get a very um, sort of maybe the other side of her beginning story as like her child grows up and he's fine and her, her husband seems to be a reasonably good dad. Um, mm-hmm. And then we also get another... Um, interspersing of uh, a horror story or, or a, a, a urban legend where basically uh, an American girl is with her mother feels ill mm-hmm. and uh, gets taken advantage of in Paris. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe. It's the ambiguity um, that makes it all the worse. Yeah. I, but I'm her, not sure the ambiguity mother's... makes it worse. Mm. <laughs> her mother is sick. She goes out to try to find a doctor with this sort of taxi cab. Uh, finds the doctor, or finds some pills. Um, well, finds doctor who sends her to a different location to get the pills. Never go to a second location. Were assim- hand hand assembled from powder. 
Yeah. By the um, doctor's wife, I think, too, even. Yeah. Um, and then tries to go back to her mother and can't find her. Yeah. With it kind of being left open, is this, is this a vast conspiracy that is being inflicted upon her to deny her the ability to grieve over her dead mother, or is she just going insane? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and it, it presents both of these scenarios, and then ends with the very ambiguous line, I don't need to tell you the moral of this story, I think you already know what it is. Yeah. And then we go back to uh, our protagonist with a son. <laughs> yeah. yeah we, we, sort we, of... We, we're, An we're, autonomous being in the world. Yeah, we're, we're jumping ahead years pretty rapidly as we go through the yeah. rest of this. Yeah. Um, and this is sort of where we get introduced to her doing something outside of her husband, um, which is a women's art class at a local college. Yeah, I would j- I'd only point out before that that, like, in in the sort of discussion of her son and, and him growing up. And he is, he is still young. He is about five years old and he is interested in why she has a ribbon mm-hmm. and in, what that means. In, in part because he, I think it's implied overheard the dad challenging the mom about it. Mm-hmm. Cause the dad, this is the, this is probably really the first time since they were very young, even before the relationship, the dad's straight, I think I don't think they ever reached this point. He's straight up challenging her on it and he's, clearly kidding he's not happy with this that she's yeah. allowed to keep this from him that she's allowed to keep anything from him mm-hmm. yes um, um so and the son overhears this i think i think they even said i hear a creeping buzz look the son's feet are vanishing from the staircase and then the mm-hmm. next day the son inspired by the dad he's asking yeah. the questions yeah and um, get, but get a no-no can get a no-no can oh my god yeah <laughs> shake the pennies in the can um you and and your relationship will be forever changed. But oh my god! <laughs> um, but then we do get to the art class, right? Like, so she has more time on her hands because her son is in school, right? Et cetera, et cetera. And so she enrolls in an art class. Sorry, I wasn't trying to skip over. She was suggested that she take an art class by yes. uh, his teacher at the park. Yeah. Who who was like, okay, well, you're going to be bored since you don't have a child at home. You should go take an art class. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so she does. And so she does, yeah. <laughs> and what's particularly interesting here is our sudden realization that she's not alone in this with respect yes. to the riddle. That, that's huge in terms of us interpreting what this means or how do we understand this. To suddenly realize that, no, from what we can tell, all women have this in some way. It's different for each of them. It's unique to each of them. That for the woman that she bonds with here, that she interacts with, it's on her ankle. For another one, it's on her thumb. But they all have it. Different colors, different locations, but all the same in that regard. Yeah, and so she she has this um, this relationship. Well, she has this um, kind of calling. Yeah, and it starts with a sort of calling to this female model that they are drawing in this class, and she is she's really struck by her, mm-hmm. um, but doesn't. I mean, is not going to doesn't really think anything of it or pursue anything, but they do, I think, as you said, Spencer, they have this flirtation, they go out for coffee, um, and they have, I I think, this real connection. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And she, kind of against her, uh, knowing it's probably not good to tell him, she still tells her husband about the interaction, what she felt about it, and despite it being very personal to her, despite it being something that was very meaningful to her, that she had a lot of feelings about, he immediately takes it away from her and makes it his. Yeah. It becomes his desire. It becomes his fantasy. And it's never hers again. Mm-hmm. And that she even says, I feel as if I have betrayed her somehow and I never returned to the class. And 
as we hear here at the end in terms of if you're reading this story out loud, force a listener to reveal a secret, then open the nearest window to the street and scream it out loudly, if, as you as loudly as you are able. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, we're, there's a lot of size attached to the story, and it's not because we're in any way dislike the material, it's because it's, it is really rough to talk about it, even more, even more so than it was to read it the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, another urban legend that I'm not familiar with, because clearly I'm not familiar with essentially any urban legends. Um, Spencer, is this another one you're... Yep. Okay. Yep. Uh, I know this one, too. <laughs> interesting. Uh-huh. Um... Yeah, I guess mine was more uh, Golem. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. okay. On brand. Um, so, 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 yeah, story. Uh, woman cooking dinner for her husband. Uh, the meal is spoiled. Has to find an alternative. Uh, salvages a liver from a corpse. Feeds it to him. Realizes before the end when she's, you know, convinced that the uh, dead woman she got the liver from is coming after her that no, she actually harvested it from herself. And it was the best meal that he ever had. Indeed. Mm, yeah. Uh, and again, the author wants us to understand the story that that may not be the version of the story you're familiar with, but I assure you it's the one you need to know. Yeah, I love that there are like, a, a, and maybe we'll talk about this later, but like there are a multitude of different types of asides that happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And sometimes they're sort of stage directions and sometimes they sort of come from the consciousness of the author and sometimes they come from our protagonist and you never really know necessarily who they're coming from, but I, that ambiguity is so smart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it makes for such an interesting experience. Some of these are straight up fables that are yeah. worked into this story, but you're never sure before you get to the end to really know how to interpret it or what to make out of it. And mm-hmm. it, makes for a very interesting reading experience. I mean, the only ones you can tell are the ones that are in parentheses because those are straight-up stage directions, and they're often a mix between darkly comic and tragic in all kinds of ways. Yeah. Um, this next little vignette that we get is a weird one. Uh, Halloween? Yeah, mm-hmm. this, is, this, this, this one stands out kind of separately from a lot of the rest. I feel like this is um, where we get sort of a mixing between the horror... Uh, the horror stories that are the urban legends and real life. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's true. Um, and so, our protagonist husband, protagonist's husband, is really excited for Halloween. Her son is going to dress up, do the whole thing, but he is concerned that she is not dressed up. Mm-hmm. And asks him what, or asks her what she is, and she, she says, she, she kind of sarcastically responds, "I'm your mother." And this blows his little mind. <laughs> but I thought you always were. It was a disguise the whole time. <laughs> this is indeed five-year-old logic for how that could play out. Yeah. Um, and so they, you know, they go out. And the husband and the son go out trick-or-treating and, like, he comes back. And in five-year-old logic, like, it's all fine. Um, yeah. but Except for her. Yeah. I think that she, well, she is still obviously upset about this earlier interaction, but... Her husband is just letting him eat any of the candy, and we seem to be right in the middle of the scares around pins and razors and poisons and all kinds of things being infused into any Halloween candy that somebody might be picking up. Yeah, very 70s, 80s kind of figures. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, But what's really interesting to me about this scene is that before this moment, her relationship with her son has been very much described how personal it is, how much she's connected we start to see moments here that she's not really able to have a relationship independently with him anymore. Mm-hmm. That when she has this kind of unpleasant moment, 
the husband immediately just takes him away and mm-hmm. they go out trick-or-treating and she's not able to have an explanation or talk with him about this and by the time he's come back he's already forgotten it and they've got no point no chance to process it or unpack it and he's just eating candy and whatever else and it's in defiance of her but he's happy but this is really the last moment that we hear anything about the two of them having a relationship because from here we just jump forward years as he grows up without any degree of detail about what they experienced during that time mm-hmm. yeah and these are interesting moments of uh, like dual moments of him gaining autonomy and personhood as a child kind of growing mm-hmm. but i think but what particularly that takes as a away from her little boy yes yeah. yeah particularly as a little boy because like at the end of well two sentences from the end of this we get i think a very telling line the forgiveness and this is his forgiveness of her tastes sweeter than any candy that can be given at any door mm-hmm. and then and she I starts mean, telling him five-year-old fairy tales. <laughs> yes yeah yeah and she sings to him to fall asleep and we never really hear a detail again about the two of them are really interacting other yeah. than in a very impersonal kind of way because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. we now just start jumping years yeah yeah we go and go at this point I mean, we, I mean, the next chapter is about the play, mm-hmm. uh, and then I mean, that, I mean yeah. we skip we skip like eight or nine years over the course of like the next section. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're flowing along. Yep, and but, you know, but, she sees another uh, mother that has a uh, ribbon on her finger that that's tangling the thread, um, mm-hmm. and then he's twelve, and he asks about the ribbon. Mm-hmm. Um, right at the right time in his life um and she just distracts him because she doesn't want to have that talk um and apparently he's a nice child because he waits for the slow kid um when he's 13 14 um what did you also did you also note how she describes his transition from being a boy to an adult the smell that's associated with it yeah Yeah, that was very interesting yeah, I don't know really what to make of it exactly, but a milky sweetness replaced with something sharp and burning like hair sizzling on a stove. I think, I, did, I mean, this is a, a particularly sort of writerly expression of this, but I think that if you ask most mothers about moving from sort of childhood to adolescence, they mm-hmm. will describe a change in smell. Sure. Yeah. Because I, babies have You all experience smell. that. Yeah, babies and children have a certain smell, and then you become an adult, and you're like, oh, wait, this is... <laughs> what? <laughs> That's not a good smell. <laughs> yeah. No, you I, need some deodorant, sir. What are you doing? Yeah, I've never heard it described quite as, like, hair sizzling on the stove. Yeah. It's, it's an intimidating way of putting it. Yes, it is. Very... A little bit more accurate than I would otherwise describe it, but yes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but she... She takes pains to say that her boy is, is a grows up good. He, he, that there is not a bad thing about him, mm-hmm. uh, and very much mir- purposefully mirroring her own life and experience. At about the exact same age, he meets a beautiful girl from high school. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and he's going to go to university, but first he's going to get married. Sure. Yep. Um, and then everybody's excited about it. Yeah. Even the luckiest woman alive has not seen joy like this, which. She has a way of making lines that could be perceived as happy also seem tragic, too. Yeah. Um, and then we get the real concentrated steel hook story. Yeah. In a fashion. Sort of, yeah. We get all the build-up. We get all the classic... Okay, BJ, tell me you heard this one growing up. Yeah. Murder with the hook hand. Yeah. That, that I've okay. heard. <laughs> okay. 
This one's been parodied so common. Yes. We go through the story, which is, again, all about her... The girl basically rejecting her own will or submitting to the boy's will because, don't you trust me? Because obviously he's right. Mm -hmm. And her going along with it despite knowing that it's a problem. And it ends an interesting way of where they go along with it and she's looking along the lakeside and there, of course, is the killer waving at her grinning. And then our narrator says, I'm sorry, I've forgotten the rest of the story. Yeah. And we continue. And now we're back to just the husband and wife together. And we have our ending approaching. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, which, given that all of us knew this story, we knew where this was going to end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, t- in terms of the, we all knew the Green Ribbon story. We all, we all knew that classical, that classic urban tale. Yes. Um, so we figured this was going to be worked in eventually. And here it does. Yeah. And it's an interesting, because even to the end of this, it is not her choice to have this happen. Right. No, it isn't. Do you want to untie the ribbon? Yes. Uh, it, and again, he, she takes pain, like, like I said earlier, she takes pains to say here that she's happy, that he's not a bad man, and that in some way hurts more that he isn't. Yeah. And then it progresses. But yeah, do you want me to untie? And he greedily, gaily says yes. Then do what you want, which yep. has nothing to do with her. Yeah, and she doesn't do it. She does not untie it. It is him mm-hmm. entirely that does that. Yep. And he makes it as sensual as possible, at least for him. Yeah. Uh, and then um, her head falls off. Yep. <laughs> yep. Which yep. I love I love the end of this. Or, well, I guess it's not at the very end, but I'm afraid I can't tell you because I don't know. Or if you are reading this story out loud, you may be wondering if that place between my ribbon protected was wet. Or if that place my ribbon protected was wet with blood and openings or smooth and neutered like the nexus between the legs of a doll. I'm afraid I can't tell you because I don't know. For these questions and others and their lack of resolution, I am sorry. Mm-hmm. And and just the ending, as my loved head tips backward off my neck and rolls off the bed, I feel as lonely as I have ever been. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, we finished so we our plot. Here. Yep. So I was very ambivalent about the story because I was very frustrated that it was the green ribbon. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, what... Like, what, what's the story that the author's trying to tell? Like, where's this going? Because I've, you know, very early on, it's very obvious what it is. And it's just like, how does this actually play into what it is? Mm-hmm. And then I guess that, that my, I was looking for something else out of the story because she's not maybe updating or, or, or putting more into the original story and making a little bit more of, I guess, what I think is much more social commentary of the story rather than just like a a horror, a little bit of a, a children's horror story. Right. And the original stories are much told from the perspective of the guy. The girl is nothing more than a prop. She is the thing that something happens to so that he can react to it. Whereas uh, here, our author's trying to uh, give a character to the thing. Yeah, you cannot see me, but I am nodding my head furiously. <laughs> <laughs> the perfect Thank way you. to do things for radio. Tell me. <laughs> um, but I, oh, sorry, BJ, I didn't interrupt you there. Oh no, no, it's it's fine. And, and so, I mean, that was sort of my ambivalence because it was just like I. So uh, a little part behind the curtain. One of the the next book that that we're going to be doing is Spitting Silver by Naomi Novik, which is. Uh, play and maybe update to 
uh, Rumpelstiltskin. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh, wait, is this like another sort of retelling of a story, but like with a different perspective and twist? And, and I don't, I guess I wouldn't quite say that it is. I mean, it's clearly a different perspective, but it's not really a twist on it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it is. I think it is a twist on it. Um, I, it is probably not an updating of it simply because we have we have talked about it as timeless, and it right. is a, in fact the same, literally the same story, right? In terms of the beats that happen, right? Mm-hmm. But the understanding of what I, what I think the story does so brilliantly that is so different from other iterations of this story, and Spencer, you alluded to this, is that it inhabits a woman's body dealing with this situation. Mm-hmm. Which is just literally not anything that has happened in this story before. Right. I, I think um, telling way. it as a horror story, sorry, Spencer. No, no, you're right. Uh, is 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 the way that it has been done before? But this is like a real personal odyssey. And yes, it has the the elements of the fantastic in it. It has elements of horror in it. It is certainly playing on all of the tropes of urban legends and yeah. and all of that. Um, but by the switch of changing the perspective changes everything yeah mm-hmm. and and i think that the the lessons and um other things that mm, that are sort of an undercurrent of a lot of um urban legends especially ones that involve guys and girls are sort of the mm-hmm. the point that she is trying to make which i guess i'm not Sure, at least some of those are are quite the same point. I mean, obviously, the one where they're in the car and the killer's about is a point. It has sort of the the same undercurrents, and and so I guess this is where I feel is a natural segue to what's the ribbon? Is it a real ribbon? And my hundred percent conviction is no, it's not. It's clearly a stand-in um, for another idea. Let me just say one last point on that topic yep. before we go on a little bit. In some ways. Using a well-known framing device like this of where putting your story in the structure of a tale that already everybody knows is almost like similar to, sa- to doing it like a, in the way of satire, of where once everybody knows where the plot's going from A to B to C, you can provide so much commentary be- uh, in between those points mm-hmm. that by removing that element of mystery about what the actual setting of the entire story is, you can then spend more time focusing on what analysis and commentary you want to make about that kind of tale in that setting Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's almost like with shakespeare where he was even mocking himself that he was doing romeo and juliet as an obvious uh ripoff pyramus and thisbe point point even uh, even wrote pyramus and thisbe into midsummer night's dream to kind of make fun of himself but he then gives an opportunity to provide some commentary in the present events in the process and change little details too as you go through it um but yeah in terms of the ribbon I very much believe it is a stand-in for something more than just plainly a ribbon. I'm with you there, BJ. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it certainly, I, th- I think it certainly is kind of in our understanding of the story, but I also think that, like, within the story, we have a lot of evidence that, like, ribbons are actually a thing. I, yeah. That, you know, I mean, I think it can be both and. Well, I, I, yeah. I think it's not, I think the point is it's not one thing. Yeah. That it is that person's thing. That it is the last thing they keep to themselves. It is the last mm-hmm. thing that is most treasured and unique and secret to them. Whatever that may be. Really? Whatever may form and may express itself. Interesting, because I I interpreted it differently, but... And sorry, Sarah, go ahead. No, so what what did you interpret it as? Sexual agency. Uh, I think she'd given up on that a while ago before Uh, giving up the ribbon. That's interesting. 
I, I um, and I think that's where like yeah. his touching it and then getting closer and closer to untying it and then finally he did and basically I I, I guess I interpreted it as the the damage of that loss and how it af- would and will eventually affect the different women that it might happen to and mm-hmm. for some of them it's problematic but not life ending and for her it is that's yeah that's interesting I. I, I think that that's, that's probably fair. Um, I took a little bit, I, I think a little bit broader of a view on it. Not that it was specifically sexu- sexual agency, although that is certainly there. I mean, if you were talking about, like, can you touch it or not? And I'm going to do it anyway. Like, there is a... Yeah, I, I guess that's the most that obvious. Is, like, maybe. There, 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 is, there is certainly that element that is going to be going on there. But I think... You know, I go back to the beginning of this story when we we talked about our protagonist certainly has sexual agency, mm-hmm. um, and so so I think your your sort of narrative arc works, BJ, and and I think that's super interesting. But I I read it as a little bit more of it can be sexual or not, but I as a person in the world get to have something that is just mine. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, guess because to we, we, go ahead. Seth. Well, we could all be right. It could, for well, her, yeah. just yeah. be sexual agency. And that's, I think, that's true, yeah. I think in the context of the story, it is, because that's one of the first bases of her character that we understand. Mm-hmm. And the beats of her son asking about it are very much timed as it being about sex. Yeah. That asking to like at age five instead of curiosity and confusion because he overheard his dad talking about it. Asking about it about 12 or 13 and her saying that she'll understand it someday. It, for her, it definitely seems to be an element of sexual agency. But at the same time point Sarah and I make is that that may just be how it expresses in her it's also just unique to the individual but I guess I feel like because it's only women and because of the the tales that she's telling that they sort of all come together to be like the the loss of sexual agency and 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 how that plays out in the various uh urban legends Oh, see, that's interesting because I read a little bit of her reliance on these urban legends that all have to do with female sexuality as why the fuck does it always have to be about female sexuality? Well, okay. Hmm. I, 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 don't, I don't see them always being about female sexuality. I see them always being about women being, women's will either being overcome or not respective or not even regarded seems to be the undercurrent beyond all these. Okay, well, so, yes. so, so maybe yeah. female agency rather than specifically female sexual agency. I, th- I, I, sure. would, I would agree with that more, yeah. Not, I mean, I agree with you anyway, but I, <laughs> that sounds better to me. Because yeah. <laughs> like one of the most important stories is the one about the girl and her mom and her, mom and her just wandering around Paris. There's mm-hmm. no real element of necessarily sexual agency unless you want to interpret it in. Mm-hmm. But there's just still a utter lack of control and utter yes. just everyone else plotting everything else around her and the only mm-hmm. alternative to that is accepting she's insane. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, you know, I think that uh, the story is called The Husband's Ditch. One of the, I think, pivotal scenes in this in this story is the kind of post-birth scene mm-hmm. when we are talking about, when she she is notably not talking about, but her doctor and husband are talking about The Husband's Ditch. Um mm-hmm. You know, they are talking about it absolutely in a way that has to do with sexual pleasure um, for a man. Yeah. Um, but the the sense that I get from that specifically is not about her sexual pleasure, but about the fact that it's her body. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it could be more pleasurable for her or not or whatever, but she's looped up at yeah. this point mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. not involved in this conversation at all. And so, yeah, I think, BJ, you're right. The the idea of agency writ large, and we can tie it to sexual agency in a lot of a lot of situations in this story, but mm-hmm. I think it goes... Yeah, I mean, it's I think in... Those, those feed into each other. Right, it's in the dynamic of sort of everything yes. in yes. this short story. And so, I mean, it's obviously colored by it, but it does have a larger uh, meaning, presumably. Um, Yeah, it it bleeds out into other aspects of her life that we see. And then we also see, I think, Spencer, to your point, that there are are other women that maybe it has a different valence for. Yeah. To use the example of the woman that's helping her stitch the costumes for the the play Mm -hmm. that her son is in. She talks about that in her case, the ribbon interferes, that it causes her difficulty, but it's just the way it is. That seems a different kind of expression of it than, say, like a sexual agency kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it represents for her, but it doesn't seem like it's playing out in the same way. Yeah. Yeah, no, we could spin that out in a number of different ways um, that, you know, her husband doesn't want her to have some sort of employment outside of the home or like there are any number of ways that that could play out. But you're right. It does have a different valence to it. Yeah. So there was a paragraph that, that I kind of wanted to bring up and I... I interpreted something about it, and, and I'm wondering if you guys got the similar thing, which is 11 is a terrifying age. I remember mm-hmm. nothing before I was 11, but then it was all color and horror. What a number, and she says, what a show. Then her face slipped somewhere else for a moment, as if she had dipped beneath the surface of a lake. Given everything else, I guess I sort of interpreted this as as sort of part and parcel to the... Uh, girl getting her her menses coming of age and that sort of just being a thing that they both bonded over and then Mm -hmm. they sort of brush over it because we're not going to get too deep into it and maybe had they been able to continue this friendship they it's not she was a person that she could have opened up to about this yeah i think that's true um that 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 certainly reads right to me i mean that's that's what happens at 11-ish, right? Like, this is, yeah. this is where we are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, um, we've together read two stories by this author. Um, do we recognize yeah. some kind of common elements between these two? I mean, mm-hmm. could... No. <laughs> <laughs> I clearly would not think... do well in a literary program. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> write, a, write a six-page paper about the... <laughs> the commonalities. Yeah. I mean, there seems she's. I mean, again, we've got a very limited sample size to work from the here, but she loss seems to of really. Agency of, uh, yeah. Women. I think that's yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. That, 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 that seems to be a through line, definitely between the two. That, mm-hmm. A lot we could say about eggs, but that definitely seems to be one of the main themes of it, and it seems to be a big key aspect of this one, too. Eggs are a serious symbol of fertility and rebirth, and so the, the discussion about eggs probably wasn't actually about eggs, given hmm, how it resolved. I think that's true, BJ. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think that this is all about... Uh, you've read other stuff of hers, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, and this is like, if, if you were going to identify a through line, um, it, is, it is very much about sort of a, the experience of being a woman in the world. 
um, and the experience, and I and I will say like the particular experience of female sexuality in the world. Like mm-hmm. this is these are questions that she is very interested. Carmen Maria Machado is very interested in. And Karen um, clearly did not understand whatsoever, and <laughs> is on brand. Uh, Karen has some other issues that she might need to resolve. Uh, we're um, pretty. Um, um, remind me, guys, but wasn't the Eggs also published in 2014? I'm not sure. Um, it was not then later published. It was not included in this short story collection. And this this short story collection, um, Her Body and Other Stories, is um, Carmen Maria Ch- Machado's uh, premier short story collection. Although I think that she, I don't remember if it's before or afterwards, but she also has a memoir out. Hmm. Yeah, what, and you're correct, you, Spencer. It's April 2014 that it was published. Okay, but not part of the, this compilation. It's, it okay, was in light speed. When, when you say premiered, is this her first or is this her main famous one? Her first. Gotcha. Yeah, so she is, I believe she's 31 years old. Really? Uh-huh. This may be the youngest author we've read in this, pro- in this program. Yeah, so she is, she is relatively young and she has this short story collection and um, her memoir out. Um... But I, I would say, I don't know. I would say that her stories read older. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised. Yeah, mm-hmm. she well, she's 33 yeah, but, now, so so she okay. would have been, she would have been 26 I think she was 31, when published. I think she was 31 when her short story collection came out in 2018. Well, I gotta say, uh, Sarah, thank you for recommending this. I, I really quite enjoyed them. I didn't know what I was going to expect out of this one based on our experience with eggs. Other than <laughs> eggs was a lot of fun to talk about, but this one, this isn't that category of stories of where I feel like. I mean, I think the author almost tells you it in the, in the course of the story that it really needs to be talked about. Mm-hmm. You kind of yeah. need to discuss it with others and unpack it to really get the full sense of it. Because I enjoyed it. I looked forward to talking about it. But now, discussing it with you guys, I felt like I've had now a completely better formed experience from it. I do too. I think that's I think that's 100% fair. I feel like it'd be a very weird story to recommend to somebody and be like, and you have to make somebody else read it and then talk to them about it. And I'm not sure I want to talk to you about it. So... Well, I... <laughs> You're going to talk to your parents about this. Yay! <laughs> No, I, I actually already sent it to them because they asked me. They asked me now to send send them everything that I send. I just included Aww. a little tagline with this one. They they really enjoy reading it. Though um, I got a message from my mom a couple days ago saying Sunday we're talking about eggs. You have explaining. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. But uh, well, th- report back <laughs> to us. <laughs> this will be a fun one to unpack. Uh, um, d- did I mention to you guys also uh, to kind of restore it to a prior story we talked about? But um, our I'm blanking on the name. The cat picture story from yep. the computer. Cat pictures, uh, cat, pic- cat pictures, please. Uh, did I tell you that, what, how my parents conceived the computer? Sorry, no, you of... didn't. This was this was on the on the horizon. Yes. Uh, my dad saw it as female. My mom saw it as male, and they never at any point saw it differently. So interesting. I would love to speak to your mother about this because I saw it as male as well. So her her explanation was is that it was. Because it was mechanical, because it was technology, yes, uh, she never saw it as anything else, and was legitimately surprised when, like, we were talking about it, that we referred to it as a she. My dad was cut off guard when when referred to it as he. He's like, (laughs) no, I saw it as maternal. I saw it as caring. I saw it as emotive. I never saw it as male. And they were stunned that I brought up how we all thought about it in the same light. 
Um, Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. So, so the other side <laughs> of that said- is uh, my girlfriend uh, and her mom both read it. Uh, my girlfriend thought it was male. Her mom thought it was female. I didn't get to get a, a, a question and answer and explanation, but I might try and uh, get follow up. Well, yeah, were I would so- like to know. They were so fascinated by this and this trend that they've now sent it to all their friends and they're going to start taking samples because they were so caught off guard by that and what it suggested and what it implied. We're getting a bigger sample what... size. Yay. <laughs> Yay. Rigor. But I'm, t- I'm entirely a field, but I just want to bring back, bring back that reference just because of how it would take. They love the story and then we're so fascinated by that when it came out too. So BJ, thank yeah. you for pointing that out to all of us. Yes, because I think we could have had that entire conversation each in our own little world of what we thought, who we thought this voice was, yeah, without mm-hmm. ever having brought it up. I think we would have brought it up eventually, because I, I was being very careful not to gender it. But I have a feeling that somebody would have slipped, and we would have been like, "Oh, wait a minute, what?" Yeah, that's probably fair. Um, all right, so we have had several stories about eggs now. <laughs> After a fashion, yes. If our listeners would like to know more about eggs, for example, Duncan Egg is a possibility on this podcast channel. Well done. I like it. Where might they go, BJ? If you want to expand your palate to to things eggs related or even non-egg related, we have a number of other podcasts that we do um, that are all found on MangumTalks.com. Uh, or wherever you get your podcasts. And so we have this, which is Mangum Reads. We have our Pottercast within a podcast, Pottering Around. Uh, There's also Whiskey on the Weekends, where we drink whiskey and mostly chew the fat. Um, And there's also uh, Mangum Talks TV, where Spencer and Lee talk about terrible people and thoroughly enjoy it. Um, but if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, or uh, rigorous experiments that you want us to follow up on, you can click contact us in the upper right-hand corner of our website, and uh, please do so, and we'll stop maybe getting as much spam. And with that, uh, have a good evening, guys. I'm excited to uh, maybe jump into our novel next. Maybe. We will see. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Bye, y'all. Have a great night.